What is the one thing in this life that you live for? The one thing, talking to each one of you on a personal level, don't care what your age is, what is the one thing, the single most important, all-consuming thing that your every day and your every night and your every thought and your every effort are focused upon achieving in this life. In just a few weeks, the 2022 Beijing, Beijing Olympics will begin. For those athletes who really, truly, sincerely hunger for and have their sights set on bringing home gold, the answer to that question is really quite simple. And it would be obvious to anybody, even the most casual observer of their lives. Over the course of those Olympics, chances are, if they follow the same pattern on the television coverage that they have in years past, you're probably going to hear a lot of personal stories about some of these athletes' months and even years of single-minded focus, of single-minded dedication, of single-minded determination and preparation that they have put in. You will most likely hear stories of how many of these athletes have put everything else in their lives on hold in order to achieve the one thing, the single most important thing on earth to them. That's bringing home the gold. Educational pursuits for many of them put on hold. Recreational pursuits put on hold. Even personal and relational pursuits are often sacrificed on the altar of their single-minded focus, their all-consuming effort, and their just plain and simple downright hard work that they put in and the practice that must be put in day after day in order for them to take home the gold. You know, asking some of those athletes what their purpose in life is, or what is the one thing they live for, what is the one thing they have completely given themselves over in order to accomplish would actually be a very foolish question to ask any of them for two reasons. Number one, because it ought to be incredibly obvious to even the most casual observer of their life what they're trying to accomplish. And number two, it would be a foolish question to ask them because their preparation is so intense they don't have time to answer such foolish questions. Do you know what? For the blood-bought child of the living God, the answer to such questions, to such a question, what is the purpose of your life, ought to be even more obvious still. Ought to be like that obvious to anybody. Now, now some may say, well, the answer is, is going to heaven. Well, while the answer is going to heaven in the end, that is true, it is still only this one all-consuming, single-minded focus and purpose of which I speak and we are going to discuss this morning 
that will eventually enable us in the end to be able to go home, not to take home the gold, but to go home to those golden streets as it were. You see, for the Christian, the Christian's sole purpose in this life, the one thing that we live for or are to live for, the one thing that we are to give ourselves over totally to, to accomplish no matter what, from the very moment we come out of that baptistry till the moment that we take our final breath is one thing. To become more like Jesus. That's it. To become more like Jesus. Every day. From the moment we come out of that baptistry where we are adopted into God's family, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, we are to begin a process to show that our spiritual DNA is now the same as Christ's spiritual DNA now that we've been adopted into his family. To display our new family resemblance to God our Father and Christ our brother. That's our mission. That's our goal. So that when Jesus returns to take his family home, he will recognize us as his own because we have the same spiritual DNA. We look like Jesus. Because we certainly don't want to be unrecognized as his, like those who thought they were recognized as his in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Becoming more like Jesus should be such an overwhelming, all-consuming focus of ours. It should be the, the one mindset and desire, the top priority for us. It should become so obvious that even those who look at our lives from the outside, like I mentioned those athletes, they can tell that's what that person's trying to accomplish. That's obviously their goal in life. That's what they're trying to do. But brethren, before there can be no doubt in their minds as to what we're trying to accomplish, there must be no doubt in our minds first that that is our goal, our one all-consuming overriding goal. Because you see, what we need to understand is that that is exactly what God, exactly what God is seeking to accomplish with everything he does with us. Everything he gives us the opportunity to accomplish in our lives, God has one goal as well from the moment we come out of that baptistry till we take our last breath, and that is that we become more like Jesus too. That is God's goal for us. Everything he does, everything he gives us the opportunity to accomplish is with that goal in mind so that we will be more fit for the heavenly kingdom. And you know, if we could just get a good grip on that, if we could just really, really get that engraved on our hard drives, if we could get a hold of that solid scriptural truth, that that is our purpose, that is our mission, that is our goal, that's what we're in training for, that's it. It would change our outlook, change our mindset, it would change our pursuits, it would change our responses on a daily basis directly influencing everything we do for the better, for the Savior. That's our purpose. We are in training every day 
to become more like Jesus. Not to bring home the gold, but to go home to the gold. And so today we're going to discuss this, this life-altering, this life-giving understanding in a little two-part sermon mini-series. And I, I plead with you, please come back tonight to hear the conclusion, but, but we're going to talk about this in a little sermon series that goes by the same title as the Song of Invitation that's going to follow both lessons. And that song title is, Oh, to be like thee. Want you to notice, you can take a songbook or not, it doesn't matter, you should have it marked to 788 if you follow along in a songbook. I want us to just notice the first verse of the song, we're going to sing it later, but I want us to just notice how the first verse of this song validates or verifies everything I've just said. We sing the song, we need to mean it. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Do you see it? It's a lifelong thing, all the time. There's no, there's no expiration date on it. This is my constant longing. This is my prayer. This is what I pray to God that I want to be. Gladly I'll forfeit all of life's treasures. I'll forfeit everything else. Just like those athletes forfeit so many other pursuits. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. That's what this sermon's about. It's what this sermon mini-series is all about. Oh, to be like thee. We sing it. Are we supposed to sing with the understanding? Right? Well, if we're going to sing with the understanding, and we're going to sing, oh, God, I want to be like thee. I just want to be more. Then we need to make sure that that's what we really want, and we need to understand that that is our purpose, that is our focus. And, and so the first thing I want to do is to prove the biblical truth of our theme today, which is this. One more time that from the moment of our baptism into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and, and being saved, 1 Peter 3.21, up until the moment of our final earthly breath, our one all-consuming focus, purpose, desire, and priority in this life, the one thing that we must give ourselves over to totally accomplishing in this life, no matter what, is to become more like Jesus. Oh, to be like thee. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose for us. Therefore, this must be our plan, and it must be our purpose for us as well, because this is exactly what God's Word tells us. For example, if you'd open with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12, a very well-worn couple of verses, Romans chapter 12, consider. In Romans chapter 11, what the Apostle Paul has talked about there, in Romans 11, he's talked about God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. He's talked about God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness as it relates to God's plan of salvation. Romans 11 is about God's plan of salvation. It's immediately after talking about that salvation that God has made available to everybody in Romans chapter 11 that Paul immediately goes on before there were chapter and verse divisions in the Roman epistle, he goes on to say in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 
what all who have been saved by that plan of salvation must then, because of it, continually give themselves over to accomplishing as a result. Make it simple. Romans 11, because we've been saved, therefore, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we must do this. Because we have been saved from the moment we have been saved and taken of that plan of grace and mercy, therefore, our purpose becomes to become more like Jesus. Let me read it from the word of God. I, chapter 12 and verse 1 of Romans, I beseech you, therefore, therefore connects it to everything he's just said. Brethren, by the mercies of God, because of God's mercy, because you become a Christian, because of all you have, because of the mercies of God, by those mercies, Romans 12, 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Doesn't say the first 10 years you're Christian, the first four decades you're Christian. This is from the moment you become a Christian and partake of that mercy. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's only reasonable that God brought us back with his mercy, that we should seek to become more holy, more pure in God's eyes. Not, not, I realize our sins have been washed away. I understand that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in our behavior. This is our reasonable service to do this. And do not be conformed, verse 2, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how we do it, by continually taking in these thoughts, by reading the word, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Any of you who've been in the church for a number of years have probably heard sermons on Romans 12, 1 and 2. You probably are all aware that the word transformed in verse 2 comes from the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. And it pictures the idea of a caterpillar climbing up, making a cocoon, throwing off the cocoon and becoming a butterfly and flying. That's the idea of metamorphosis, this, this sort of change. Okay? And we are to be changed that way. We are to go from being a caterpillar to taking wings in flight. The caterpillar spins that cocoon and heard a story once about a little boy that helped. He, he could see the struggle and the thing moving around, so he thought he'd help the, the caterpillar to, to get rid of the cocoon, so he helps get rid of the cocoon. And because the caterpillar didn't struggle, it didn't grow its wings in the process. There, there is a struggle there to, to get rid of that, but we are still to be metamorphosed, metamorphosized, transformed by the renewing of our mind. That, that is the idea. And this is an ongoing process. Oh, to be like thee, to be more like Jesus, to be changed. Same pattern he talked about in Romans chapter 6. Turn there. I know it's a familiar passage, but we see that, that same process again, being changed into the likeness of Jesus to be more like thee. It's, it's a lifelong process from the moment of baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. No, uh, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. From the moment of our baptism, where we put that old man of sin to death, we can't go back and live like that. We're to be transformed. We're to live different. 
Anybody that, that, that comes forward and is baptized into Christ and goes back to living the same way that they did, why they bother? There's no point in that. It doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything. It gets wet and it wastes everybody's time. There is a repentance that goes with baptism. But, but the point is, is, is from the moment of that baptism, when we arise, we should walk in newness of life. And, and he goes on to describe it in verses 5 and following. He says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We can't live like we used to. We have to be transformed. We have to become more like Jesus. That's basically what he says in verses 7 through 11. He says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see it? Just as Jesus after the tomb, came up and, and was able to do other things and, and did other things and went home to be with the Father, we're to follow that, that same example, to live in newness of life, to be transformed into his image, to do what he did, as it were, to become more like him. We see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Please, please turn to 1 Peter 1. And again, for those of you that are here on a, a regular basis, are able to be here on a regular basis, this is going to follow right along a couple of previous sermons. After Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, discusses that incredible salvation that we were given upon our obedience to the gospel, that salvation which should fill us with joy inexpressible, verses 3 through 9. That salvation which is so incredible and unbelievable that even the Old Testament prophets and the angels long to look into it as we discussed last Sunday night from verses 10 through 12, immediately about talking about, after talking about that salvation. Look at what Peter immediately turns his intention and instruction to. Look at, look at what he immediately goes to after talking about our salvation. Chapter 1 and verse 13, therefore. Because of everything he's just said, because of that salvation we have gained, therefore, this is our purpose after that, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully. Devote yourself to this fully. Rest your whole entire hope on this. It's a complete thing. Upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we do that, Peter? Well, verse 14 tells us. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. A lot of times if you were to take some of our children and you were to put them with two or three sets of parents and say, Okay, which kid belongs to which parent? Generally speaking, the child bears some resemblance to mom and dad in some way, right? Well, it's got mom's eyes, got dad's cheekbones, what, right? The kids usually look a little like their parents. You can tell. The whole point of this text is, is we're to be holy as he is holy. We are to share the family spiritual resemblance to Jesus Christ, our brother, and to God, our father. 
He says, when you come out of that, that water, when, you, when you've received that salvation, therefore, he says, you are to become obedient children, not, not looking like you used to, not with that worldly DNA, but with spiritual DNA, you now be holy in all your conduct because then you look like your brother Jesus. Then you look like your father, God. Because it is written, be holy because I am holy, is what your father says. And he goes on, and then talks about, guess what? Takes you right back to that salvation you got. Takes you right back to that blood that saved you. He talked about your salvation in, in the first part of this chapter. Then he puts in this little piece that, that says, because of that salvation, you need to do this. You need to, to pursue becoming more like Jesus and more holy. And then he's going to take you right back to the blood that gave you that salvation. Verse 17, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made known or manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Talks about their salvation, first part of the chapter. Talks about their salvation, second part of the chapter. And right in the middle of that salvation talk, those, those verses are about because of our salvation, becoming more like Jesus. That is our mission every day. And then... Peter's going to go on, and, and he's going to talk about one of the most important ways, one of the most important things that we are to pursue in order to become like Jesus. He's going to go on, and he's going to talk about in this very chapter something which God seeks to exhaust every effort to try to teach us how to do and something which we must, therefore, exhaust every effort and take advantage of every effort to learn to do. There's, there's something that in becoming like Jesus, one of the, the ways that we are most like to become like him, it's so important to God. God gives us so many opportunities, and he tries to teach us how to become like Jesus in this one area. Many areas, but this is a biggie. And so we should take advantage of every opportunity to learn, as God gives us so many opportunities to learn. And you know what that is? That is to love like Jesus Christ. That is the very next thing, after he talks about our salvation in the blood of Christ again, the very next thing that he goes into in 1 Peter 1 is how because of that salvation, in learning to be like Christ, and being holy in all our conduct, we must learn to love like Jesus. Verse 22, he says, since you have purified your souls, as your salvation, in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is one of the most important things God, God tries to teach us over and over and over and over. But you know something? Loving like Christ is no easy task. Let's just be frank, okay? 
Loving like Jesus is just not some, oh yeah, easy task. Especially when you consider the world that we came out of prior to baptism, the world we came out of. Think about our world today. Our world that is so filled with anger and hatred and pride and resentment and division and jealousy and animosity and self-promotion. It is everywhere you look in our world today. It is in the political realm. It is in the religious realm. It is in the ethnic realm. It is in the occupational realm. Even in the familial or family realm. People hurting and rejecting and hating others simply for being different than they are. It's all over the place. That's the world we came out of. The first century Apostle Paul described the days to come as follows. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4, he said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If, if, folks, if that doesn't describe our world today, I don't know what does. And, and here's the thing, and we might not like to admit this, but the Apostle Paul said we were a part of that world before we came to Christ. We were part of it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he said we, we all were children of wrath like the rest. He said that's what we were part of. He echoes that again in Titus 3, 3, when he writes, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. He, he, that's what he said in Titus 3, 3. He said, that's what we came out of. He went on to stress, however, that since we have become Christians, our sole goal or purpose in life must be to become more like the Savior every day. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, Titus 3, 4 through 11. But in becoming more like Jesus, one of the biggies is that we learn to love more like Jesus, not, not being like the world we came out of. But, but here's the question, how do we do that? How do we do it? I mean, really. And this morning, I guess, a rubber meets the road sermon. We can talk about it, but how do we really do it? How do we learn to love like Jesus and do it? Especially, again, coming out of that world where, where all of those things are so, so prominent. The answer is actually pretty simple. The answer is, we got to be taught. We got to be taught. We come out of a world that, that doesn't love like Jesus. 
There's, there's hatred and pride and rejection and, 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 and all of this bad stuff, disagreement and, and division, and, and that, ain't, that ain't the way it is with Jesus. I mean, Jesus loved everybody. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. And, and so the love of, of God, the love of Christ is different. And we've got to be taught. If you adopt a child from a, from a foreign land, or even somebody who's an exchange student who comes to live in this country, certain things they have to learn to live here, right? There's new things they have to learn about, right? Well, we've been brought into a whole new family and a whole new world, and, and, and we need to be taught how to love like Jesus. God exhausts all efforts to teach us. We must exhaust all efforts to learn and to practice. Practice. And to accomplish this kind of Christ-like love on every opportunity if we truly want to bear the family resemblance and go home to, you know, number one Gold Street, as it were. So how do we do it? Well, we follow the same three-step pattern in being taught how to love like Christ as we follow in wanting to learn anything else that we follow in school. In school, there's, there's about three steps that really teach us most any field of study that we want. There's, there's typically these same three steps, and, and these same three steps are, are how we learn to love like Jesus. Let me give you those three steps. Discuss each one. First off, number one is a two-parter. Number one, we must listen to the teacher's instructions and then watch and see how the teacher does it. That's step one. In this case, the master teacher, Jesus. What did our teacher say about it? And how did he demonstrate it? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, shall we? Let's see what he taught about it, about love, because we've got to learn. And the teacher said, remember that old show, Family Feud? I don't know why this just came up. Survey says, right? Well, okay. How do we learn to love? Teacher says, Matthew 5. Picture yourself in a classroom. Jesus is the teacher. Here's what he teaches. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Do you see the family resemblance? See? It's right there. He said, if you're going to become like God, you're going to bear the family resemblance. This is how it's done. Okay? That's what he taught. He goes on, actually, to say, let's finish it out, uh, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For, this is going to come up later, for, if you love those who love you, what reward of you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you're only going to love the people that love you back, if you're only going to be nice to the people that are nice to you, why, why is that any different than people in the world? People in the world do that. Hey, if anybody is, is treating them really good, it's, they treat them good back. That's, that's just the way it works in the world. But he said, you're not in the world anymore. You've got to go above and beyond that. He says in verse... 47, and if you greet your brethren, and that means more than saying hi, it means a loving greeting. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do so? And tax collectors will look down probably even worse on them than they are today. 
Therefore, you shall be perfect or complete. The word means just as your Father in heaven is complete. You've got to bear the family resemblance. You can't just love those who love you. You can't just, just greet and, and be, be social with those who are social toward you. He said the whole world does that. The family you're in now is different than that. Loves its enemies, prays for its persecutors. So that's what the teacher taught. But then we look at the teacher. You ever go to school and the teacher says, this is what the textbook says. This is how it's done. Let me write it up here. Okay, this is, this is how it works. Now I'm going to show you an example. Teacher ever do that? This is, let me demonstrate it for you. Well, Jesus did the same thing. Jesus demonstrated, as we all know, in, Matthew, in John chapter 13. We know that he got down that night, the night before he was crucified, and he, he did a slave's job. He washed the feet of the disciples. He washed the, the fecal matter from the streets of Jerusalem out from between their toes. He got down with a towel and he washed the feet of not Judas, who was his best buddy. Not just somebody that loved him. He got down and he washed the feet of Judas, who would betray him. Peter, who would deny him. And all 12 of whom would desert him. That was the teacher's demonstration. And he went on to say in verses 34 and 5 of John 13, a new commandment that I give to you. That you'll love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Jesus said, I told you what love is. Now I'm going to show you. What love in the family of God is like is that you wash the feet, you serve those who will deny you, reject you, betray you. He said, that's what I've done, and, and that's what love here is, is about. We learn from both what he taught instructionally and what he taught by demonstrating what Christ-like love is. Of course, the even more costly and far-reaching example of the master teacher's love was when he laid down his life for us on Calvary's cross. And I really appreciated, the, I'm just going to say this, I really appreciated this morning both the song service and the thoughts that were voiced before communion and, and just Recalling Jesus' love for us and what he went through for us always breaks my heart and hopefully my spirit and humbles me even more. But in going through all he went through for us and for people who would desert him and deny him and betray him, Jesus spoke to us through the Apostle John and said that we must practice the same type. In 1 John 3.16 and chapter 4.10 through 11 when he said, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 of 1 John, he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there we have the teacher's instruction, we have the teacher's demonstration, we have the application. Step number two, not only are those things necessary to learning, but what else is necessary to learning? If we're going to become more like Jesus, just like learning anything else that we have to be taught, what's the second step? Well, second step's pretty easy too. The second step is we take home our textbook and we do our homework, right? We have homework in school, right? Beyond the classroom. 
We have homework here. Take home the textbook, the Bible, and, and study all of the relevant passages on love. And, and when we do that, just one that I will give you for an example, again, a very familiar one, is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And in that text, in our homework book, in our textbook, we, we read and, and we understand that love is patient. Let me ask you a question. As a Christian, how many of you, because of your weaknesses, want your brethren to be patient with you? Really? Only a handful of you? Dishonest Christians we don't need. But the Bible also says that what I want, I am to give to others, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So what does that tell me? That means that I need to be as patient with others as I want them to be with me. That's this love that we read about in the textbook when we do our homework. We read that love is patient and love is kind. That love does not envy, does not boast, it's not proud, does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. And I love these next two. Love, godly love that we need to be taught and we read about in the textbook it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. How much more peace would there be in this world between Christian husbands and wives, between Christian parents and their kids, between Christian brothers and sisters, between all, all that whole group of Christians, no matter what their relationship is, how much better would our relationships be if we absolutely kept no record of wrongs? Is that right? Husbands and wives, is that right? But that's, that's the love we need to learn. Love, it says, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always protects. Jesus, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, the night he was arrested, we read in John, I believe it's John chapter 19, he said, if you're seeking me, let them go. Right? Remember who this was. He knew Peter was going to betray him. He knew they were going to all flee the first chance they got. And what did he do? He still protected them. Do we protect one another? Love protects. We need to protect one another. It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. These are the kinds of lessons we learn when we take the textbook home and do our homework. But you know something? There's a third step, and, and this is the one we often lose. You know, we're like some denominations. They'll say, this is God's plan of salvation. They'll take you right up to baptism, then they kind of leave that one off, and they never finish it, you know? Well, we do the same thing here, too, people. We need to be careful. The third step in learning something important, which is every bit as important as the first two of listening to and watching the teacher do it, and then taking home our textbook and studying all the information on it, the one that we often miss and fail to take advantage of with the same diligence let me explain it first with an illustration. In 1977, I graduated high school. And in December of that year, I attended a month's worth of tractor-trailer school to learn how to drive a tractor-trailer. And so I went to this truck driving school. We listened to the instructors. We went out in the yard and we climbed up on the side of the truck and they, we watched how they turned the wheel and backed it and, and they went through all of this stuff. And I even read and studied the materials. They give you materials on keeping a log book and how to do this and that and one thing and another. And, and so again, watch the instructors, watch how they do it, listen to what they have to say, take the homework, read the paperwork, you know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
You know what all of us guys in training school were waiting for? You know what we were all waiting for? We were waiting to get in a wheel and start moving that thing. That's what we were waiting for. Because listen, we could listen to the instructors all day long. We could, we could take home the notebooks, we could take home the information, we could do all that, but until you sat behind that wheel and realize what that trailer's going to do when you do certain things, you might as well forget the other two. Without the hands-on training, right, why do you think tractor-trailer companies, why do you think, just like any other company, why do you think they request that people have experience? Duh, there's a reason. You got 80,000 pounds going at 80 miles an hour down the highway and they've got $150,000 invested in this thing and lawsuits pending. You, they're not going to let you just get behind a wheel if you've never been behind a wheel. Right? That makes sense? And so the reason I, I take that illustration and, and I want you to remember it is because it works the same way in learning to love and becoming more like the Lord. It, it works the same exact way. We've got to get this. We've got to understand this. This is the, 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 the height of the sermon that we've got to get a hold of. We can hear the master teacher teach us how to love. Matthew 5. Love your enemies. We can watch the teacher's demonstration, just like we watch those tractor-trailer drivers' demonstration. Watch them. We can watch how Jesus washed their feet. We can see it. We can take home the textbook and we can learn about love. We can read everything's been written about it. But until we get the chance to practice it like Jesus practiced it, we're not going to learn it. They told us in truck driving school, they said, what you do when you get out on a snowy road, that trolley valve, those trailer brakes, they said, don't wait till you're in an accident and you can look out the side of your window and, and read the name on the side of the trailer because the trailers come around L-shaped. They said, if you want to know how that truck's going to respond when you're going down the road and there's not a whole lot of traffic and it's covered with eight inches of snow, hit that trailer brake a little bit and watch that trailer wiggle so you'll get used to how to handle it. Makes sense, right? But until you pull that valve and you see that trailer start coming around sideways, they can teach you all you want, but let me tell you what, it's a whole new experience when you can read the name in your rearview mirror on this side, okay? <laughs> and it's the same way with love. We can read about it. We can see how he did it. We can, we can do it. But if we don't get the opportunity to practice it, and here's the thing that we miss. Listen. Punchline. You cannot learn to love like Jesus until you are hurt like Jesus. You cannot learn to forgive like Jesus until you are put in a position where you have been betrayed and abandoned and hurt and rejected and reviled. Because forgiveness for something less than that ain't forgiveness like Jesus practiced it. Loving somebody just because they love you is not loving like Jesus loved you. And so the point we often miss is that every time Every time somebody does one of those things to us, we should automatically say, hey, this is an opportunity for me to love like Jesus. This is my chance to get behind the wheel. That's what those times are. And if we could just look at those times when people reject and revile and all those things, thus says, this is my opportunity to get, I've read about it, I've studied it, I've seen how he did it, this is my chance to love and forgive like Jesus, thank God for this hands-on opportunity.
say, Douglas, you're out of your mind. No, I'm into the scripture. For those whose sole goal and purpose and desire in this life is to be more like Jesus, then every time someone misuses or abuses us, we must never see that as anything else other than an opportunity to practice loving and forgiving like Jesus, just as he instructed us to do in places like John 13, 34, and 5, John 15, 12 through 17, uh, Ephesians 4, 32, Colossians 3, 13. Because listen, here's, here's how it works. If we fail to see those times that those things happen as anything other than an opportunity to learn to be more like Jesus, then we're going to miss out on an opportunity to get behind the wheel and love like Jesus. We're going to lose out on an opportunity. Now, God doesn't cause those things because he doesn't want anybody to say and do bad things and mistreat others. But when people choose to do that, that is a perfect opportunity that we must take advantage of to become more like Jesus because our goal in life must be, oh, to be like thee. And we have a lot of chances sometimes in our lives to do that because people don't like the fact that we're Christians standing on the truth. This morning, if you've never begun that process of becoming more like Jesus, you've never repented, put that old man of sin to death by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and, and rising to walk in newness of life, you, time to start the journey. But from the moment you come out of that baptistry until you take your final breath, you have one goal in life, and that is to become more like Jesus. Maybe you're somebody that's been baptized into Christ and you didn't realize that that was the goal in quite those terms. Maybe you failed and you need some forgiveness. Maybe you need some strength to be more like Jesus, to, to consider those trials more as opportunities to learn and to truly love and forgive like Christ. We'd love to pray for you for strength or anything else we can do. If you have a need, will you please come to the front now? We're, We're going to sing. Oh, to be like thee, this is my constant longing in prayer. We need to make sure that indeed it is. If you have a need, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?